Let's pray. Father, we do adore you. We adore you for your abundant goodness to us. We adore you for sending your Son into the world to redeem us from our enslavements, from the subjection that we were under. And Lord, we praise you that you have brought us, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Lord, it's our desire this morning to come to hear from you, from your word, so that we can know the one we love more. Lord, we want to know Christ, and we pray that you would help us uh, to have our eyes opened to him. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And we'll be looking at the first, well, verses 12 and 13. Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. So we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we come to one of the most significant events in the life of our Lord. At His temptation in the wilderness. Now, there is much we could say about this event and all the significance and all the practical implications of Jesus' temptation for our own struggles and our own fights and temptations. But I want to argue this morning that the main lesson we need to learn from our text this morning is this. In the temptation we see that Jesus' victory in the wilderness confirms for us that Jesus is the faithful Son of God who has overcome the enemy of our souls and brought us eternal salvation. That's what I want you to see with new eyes this morning as we look at Mark 1 verses 12 to 13. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we'll read, actually, beginning in verse 9 for context. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. You may be seated. Jesus' victory in the wilderness confirms for us that He is the faithful Son of God who has overcome Satan and bought or brought us eternal salvation. So how do we see that confirmed in Mark 1, 12-13? I think this passage at least demonstrates this in three ways. First, We see it in Jesus' submission to the Spirit's direction. Second, we see Jesus' sonship confirmed in His overcoming 
of Satan's opposition. And third, we see Jesus' faithfulness confirmed in his enjoyment of the Father's provision in verse 13. And what I want to do with you is just walk through these verses together, and I think you will see these things one by one as we make our way through. So first, let's look at Jesus' submission to the Spirit's direction. His submission to the Spirit's direction. Verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Now, Mark's language here is very specific. Immediately, he says, immediately following Jesus' baptism. That is, immediately after we see Jesus' resolve to identify with sinners, which is what we see in his baptism, and his desire and his um, resolve to embrace his role as the suffering servant, that is, to die in the place of sinners. Immediately after this, and immediately after the Spirit descends on Jesus to empower him for his redemptive task, and immediately after the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Immediately after that, the Spirit of God impels this Son to go out into the wilderness. He goes from the heights to the depths in a moment. Now this is forceful language. It's, it's actually quite shocking. Matthew and Luke say it a little softer. They say that Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But Mark says Jesus was impelled. Impelled or driven out by the Spirit of God. Literally, the Son of God is cast out into the wilderness. It's the same word that's used to describe what Jesus did to demons. He cast them out. It's the same word that's used to describe what Jesus did to the money changers in the temple. He drove them out. This is powerful forceful language. But we need to be careful here because Mark doesn't mean to say that Jesus is somehow now being driven along apart from His own will. We saw in His baptism that Jesus willingly goes on this journey from Nazareth to the Judean wilderness where John was preaching to be baptized. We saw His resolve to identify with sinners like you and me. So Jesus is not being carried along against His will. No, Jesus is entirely submitted to what the Spirit of God is doing. The forceful language here is actually conveying that the Spirit is the one who is in charge. The Spirit is now in control of Jesus' messianic mission. He had descended on the Son, remember, to empower Jesus for His role as the suffering servant and Savior. And now, He is leading Jesus into the wilderness. And and Jesus is not resisting. Jesus willingly goes. Now, there's a, a few reasons this is significant. Remember that the promise of the Old Testament was that the Messiah 
or the servant of Yahweh. The Messiah means Christ, the anointed one, the one through whom all the blessings to the Jews and the Gentiles would come. The promise was that this one, he would be the servant. He would be especially, though, marked by the Spirit's empowerment. This was a unique feature of this figure, this Messiah. We see that in Isaiah 11:2, where Isaiah says, The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. In Isaiah 42:1, this is one of Isaiah 42 is one of the prophecies about the servant of Yahweh who will ultimately lay down his life as a substitutionary atonement for God's people. Remember that climax is in Isaiah 53. Well, God says of this servant in Isaiah 42:1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. And we could actually multiply examples of the spirit's empowerment of the Messiah. But the idea here is that Jesus, the true Son of God, the Messiah, the Servant, the Savior, was especially marked by His submission to the Holy Spirit. He didn't go about as He desired. He was led by the Spirit. And here in Mark 1.12, we see that the Spirit is entirely in control. The Spirit's impelling Jesus forward to the task that He had been called to uphold. And that task, according to 1 John 3.8, was to destroy the works of the devil. And to redeem those who had been subject to lifelong enslavement to the devil himself. This was why Jesus came. 1 John 3.8. This reality of our enslavement to Satan and, and his uh, demonic powers is clear, is made very clear in texts like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 12, 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the devil. Outside of Christ and his work of salvation in your life, this is who you were, this is where you stood. But apart from Christ's victory uh, that begins here in the wilderness, apart from that victory, you, my friend, would remain enslaved to the devil. But, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Satan began his assault on God's people, you remember that, Genesis 3? God promised that one day a son of Eve would come. One of Eve's children would come and he would be the one to crush the Satan's head once and for all. And here in Mark 1.12, the Spirit is actually carrying out the Father's mission that stretches all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And the Spirit is impelling the Son forward for His first 
really first engagement with Satan. Remember that this is the one through whom all the devastation, the destruction, the pain and misery that you have ever experienced has come. And here the Spirit is impelling Jesus, the Son of God, into the wilderness for His first confrontation with the devil. And the Son joyfully goes. Now He was already in the wilderness. Remember, He was in the wilderness to be baptized. And this is where John was, preaching in the wilderness. The whole country, remember, was coming out to John to hear Him preach. And Jesus traveled to be baptized, and here John's preaching as well. And Jesus was baptized in the Jordan in the wilderness. But this was a region that was roughly 600 square miles. That's pretty big. There was plenty of space for Jesus to be driven out further into the wilderness. It's really, this is something of a desert, really. Uh, If you think... if if you think of what the Garden of Eden might have looked like. Okay, you got that? Now, do the opposite of all of that. All right, here's the Judean wilderness. It's something like the opposite of paradise. If you think that, if you think of it this way, the Judean wilderness was a desert, dry, arid, and uninhabited, and here was Jesus plopped down in the middle of it. There was no one there except for the wildlife. Right? Mark mentions in Mark 1.13 that in the wilderness, Jesus was with the wild beasts. He was with the wild beasts. So don't think wild beasts. Don't, don't think Snow White. This is not some peaceful paradise where the animals are coming to Jesus' aid. No. No, this is uh, an area, the Judean wilderness, that was known for its population of hyenas and jackals and panthers and wild hogs and even lions. This was not an area that you would want to be in, especially it was not an area you would want to be in alone, Especially not at night, and especially not for a period of 40 days. But here Jesus goes willingly into the desert, led by the Holy Spirit, submitted to the Father's agenda, and all of this for you. All of this for you. To crush the head of Satan, to set you free from the grip of hell. And this really was the beginning of it all. The whole Gospel of Mark, as we work through it, we're going to see these confrontations with Satan and his demonic powers again and again. There seems to have been some influx of demonic activity in the Gospels. And in one sense, it all begins right here with this battle. But this is what the Messiah had to do. As the faithful son, he had to go wherever the Father sent. And this is what Jesus did. He was the faithful son. Which brings us actually to our second point. The second way we see that Jesus' faithfulness was confirmed in the wilderness 
was in his overcoming of Satan's temptation and opposition. Look at verse 13. Mark 1, 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now Mark's account of this is, is merely two verses. So Matthew gives us 11 verses and Luke shares this event of Jesus' life in 13 verses. And I want you uh, to go ahead and hold your finger in Mark and flip over to Matthew 4. Because we're going to use Matthew's account to supplement Mark a bit uh, and get some further insight into how Jesus's, uh, Jesus overcame Satan's opposition and so demonstrated himself to be the faithful Son of God. Matthew 4 and Mark 1. One thing to notice in Matthew's account is the reason, the reason that Jesus was led into the wilderness. Mark and Luke are not as explicit as to why Jesus was led this way, but Matthew couldn't have been more explicit. Look at Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The good, loving, faithful Father sends the beloved Son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the reason the Spirit impelled Jesus was clearly to be tempted by Satan. Now, Mark and Luke also make it clear that Jesus' temptation spanned the entire 40-day period. He was in the wilderness 40 days, and the entire period he's being tempted by the devil. And what we see in, in Matthew and in Luke, where we have a detail of what that temptation was like, is probably like the climax of Satan's tempting of, of Jesus. It, it sort of comes to a head in these final three temptations. But notice carefully in Matthew 4.1 that the Father is the one who sends the Son into the temptation. Now, that should make you sort of, I think, shuffle around a little bit, especially if you're thinking about James 1. The Greek word for temptation here is parasmos, and it's actually a morally neutral word that's often translated as test in a positive sense. And the translation of the word depends on the context. In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham to strengthen his faith. In, in um, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God tested Israel in the wilderness to uncover what was in their heart. This was God's testing. But what Jesus is about to experience in the wilderness is not a test in this, in this sense. It is a temptation of Satan. Right? Satan's aim will be to entice Jesus to disobey God. That's a temptation, an enticement to disobey. And this is Satan's M.O. This is what he does to you and me. This is what he did to our Lord. He seeks to derail us from obeying God's word. And this is what Satan does. While the Spirit 
leads Jesus into this temptation, though, James is clear that the Father, God, does not himself tempt anyone. But here is God allowing Jesus to be tempted by the devil. Not just allowing it, but driving him into it. Well, the Father has a different agenda than Satan. And that's no surprise. God allows Jesus to be tempted by the devil. And it's, a, it's as a means of confirming the true identity of Jesus the Son. God is allowing Jesus to be tempted by the devil as a means of confirming the true identity of the Son. So when we read this story, and when we think about Jesus' temptation, we need to be thinking this is a confirmation of the Son's identity. Our Lord's identity is proved in this moment. John MacArthur said it this way. This is sort of a paraphrase. What Satan intended was to lead Jesus into sin and disobedience. But the Father intended to demonstrate through this the Son's holiness and worthiness. It's really similar to Joseph and his brothers, right? Genesis 50, 20. What you intended for evil, right, God intended for good. Here the devil in, in the wilderness has a sinister motive. But the Father has a motive of love. His motive is to confirm what he has already said about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is my beloved son. He is faithful, he's beloved, and I am pleased with him. Now watch it confirmed before your eyes. So the son goes into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days, it's it's really interesting. 40 days is a common length of time period in the Old Testament. Um, there are a lot of references, surprisingly, references to 40-day periods or 40-year periods even. But most relevant of all those to us are three. Moses first was on Mount Sinai for 40 days, fasting before the Lord. Moses. Elijah also, after Jezebel had threatened his life, ran away in fear into the wilderness and then fasted 40 days as he journeyed to Mount Sinai. Those are interesting, but I think the last one here is most important. Israel. Let's think about Israel. Israel wandered in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. And what's interesting here is that when Jesus is responding to Satan's temptations, you know where he quotes from? Deuteronomy. Why? In every quote is in the context of Israel's wilderness wandering. He quotes directly from Deuteronomy in these sections that are recounting Israel's failure in the wilderness. There is a striking symmetry between Israel's failure in the wilderness and the son's victory in this wilderness. And let me read you one verse to show you what I mean. Deuteronomy 8.2. Deuteronomy 8.2. You shall remember, this is God speaking to his people, you shall remember all the way which Yahweh, your God, has led you in the wilderness. Led you in the wilderness. 
This is what God has done. He led into the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his command or not. The parallels are are truly striking. Let Let me just list a few of them for you. Both Israel and Jesus are in the wilderness. Both are led by God there. Both involve obedience. And both are called periods of testing or parasmos, testing or temptation. And both Israel and Jesus are called God's son. At Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And in Mark 1.11, Jesus is called my beloved son. Now those are prominent parallels. But the contrast, it's not the parallel that's really sweet. It's actually the contrast. The contrast is powerful. Israel is the son of God who disobeys in the wilderness and fails the test. Jesus, though, is the superior son of God who obeys in the wilderness and authenticates his unique identity as the Son of God par excellence. He is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is a son, the son, who is in a category all by himself. And this temptation account is meant to bolster that reality and confirm it in our minds that Jesus is the unique, only begotten, faithful Son of God, eternally begotten. And here He is, face to face with Satan in the wilderness. And the assault that Jesus is about to experience is actually difficult to imagine. The scene is frightening. He's in an uninhabited wilderness surrounded by hostile animals, and then all of a sudden, someone appears before you who should not be where you are. Can you imagine the potential for fear? And this someone who appears is not just someone. He's the epitome of evil himself. Now, Satan, you know, is an angel, a fallen angel who rebelled against God and brought with him a host of other angelic beings that we call demons. And as we work through Mark, we're going to see these uh, in real time, as it were, this demonic activity and this opposition to the faithful son and his mission to lay down his life and ransom a people for the Father. They will stand opposed to him all the way But in Scripture, angels often appear in human form. And likely, this is what we have here in the wilderness. uh, A physical appearance of the one who is opposed to God, God's purposes. Who, in the New Testament, Satan is described as a murderer. And the father of lies. A tormentor. The great dragon. The deceiver. The enemy of our souls. This is the one standing before Jesus in the wilderness, surrounded by hostile animals and generally hostile environment. And here comes the father of lies, the murderer, the deceiver. 
And he just wants to talk with you a little bit. Mark uses the title Satan. Satan, which means adversary. Matthew and Luke use the title devil, which means slanderer. This is the being responsible for all of the rebellion and sin and effects of that in our world. And all of a sudden, he appears before Jesus and for 40 days gives Jesus his best. And he bombards him with lies and deceptions and enticements and traps and snares. And his attempt is to get Jesus, our Lord, to disobey the Father and so derail his redemptive plan. If he can make Jesus fail... All of our hope is gone. And according to Matthew 4.2, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, which is, and, and the text says that he was hungry. He was hungry, which is sort of an understatement. Um, he would have been ravaged with hunger and especially vulnerable to Satan's attack. I mean, you know that, right? You know how it feels to be hungry right now at 11.11. All right. Satan sees this weakness. Here is Jesus. And he's hungry. And so he's failed for 39 days. And here's his last shot. Let me throw at him all that I have. And so he, he comes at him with this, Matthew 4, 3. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I, I want you to notice something here. And it ties into my larger argument about why we have this temptation. He says, if you are the son of God. What is he questioning here? It's his sonship. If you are the son of God, then show me. Turn this stone into bread. Prove it to me. Prove that you really are the divine son. Now, this is just an aside, but... The fact that Satan says, if you are the Son of God, then turn this bread into stone, demonstrates at least that the Son of God title is itself a claim to divinity. Right? It's a claim to a divine status. Right? Um, you call yourself a Son of God with a, you know, a, a lower S, right? but you, you have not the power to turn a, bread into, or turn a stone into bread. You might turn bread into a stone. I could do that. Um, <laughs> But you don't have this power. But Satan knows that here is a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is no ordinary man. There's something unique about him. He knows that he is the Son of God. He knows it. The devil is, is saying to him, if you are the Son of God, then you should be able to do the sort of things that God does. And here he's especially playing on Jesus' hunger. Now remember this. Jesus is God. Amen. Right? Jesus is God. As the second person of the Trinity, He is the eternally begotten Son who is perfectly sufficient in Himself. He lacks nothing. Amen? This is who He is. Yet, in the incarnation, when He was born, Jesus takes on an additional nature. He adds to His divinity humanity. 
And in his human nature, he has a body, a soul, and a mind, just like you and I. And he was, as Scripture says, in every way tempted as you are, yet without sin. He was a man. So don't let this sort of make you uncomfortable. Because Jesus is man, but he is God. He hungered and thirsted and was tempted in every way as we are. Which this itself, him experiencing hunger, is itself part of his great condescension to us. And Satan is seizing on this perceived weakness and real weakness of his flesh as an opportunity. So he he entices him. He doesn't really need to know if Jesus is the Son of God. He knows this. He knows it. His aim is more sinister. His desire is for Jesus to exploit his divine nature for his own selfish advantage. If you had power, you would do that. You would exploit your power to please yourself. But that is not Jesus. He did not please himself. Satan wants him to act independently of the Father in such a way as to question God's good provision for him in the wilderness. The devil, his temptation here, is really to try to get Jesus to act independently of God, to take things into his own hands, as it were. And he suggested that God had somehow abandoned Jesus and left him hungry, alone, in the wilderness, with nothing to eat. And this was an underhanded assault on God's goodness and on God's wisdom. Now friend, you know that kind of assault. And every time we feel the the slight inkling of pain, we begin to question God's goodness. It's part of our fallen nature. And here the devil seizes on that and entices the son. But notice how Jesus combats him in verse 4. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's a couple of things to notice here. First, Jesus is clear that it is God's word that defines reality. It is God's word that defines reality. Regardless of the pains of his human nature, regardless of his um, unwelcoming, and that's an understatement, circumstances, what has been written, the word of God, will rule the day for Jesus. What has been written, the word of God, will rule the day for Jesus. He is establishing a precedent. He will listen to the Word of God and allow it to shape reality. Satan doesn't get to do that. His own circumstances don't get to do that. If God says He is the Good Shepherd, that's reality. Not my feelings, not my uh, hunger, not my circumstances. God's Word determines reality. What is written must always rule the day for us. That's the first thing. The Word of God must determine your reality. And this is true in every temptation. We could go on in that practical application. 
It's not our feelings, not our circumstances, not the world around us, but God's Word that determines reality. Right? Second, Jesus' response indicates that he clearly understood what Satan was up to. While Satan framed the scenario as an underhanded indictment on God's provision, Jesus understood the real issue here. The real issue was not about a lack in the Father's provision. It never was, it never is, and it never will be that. There is no lack ever in the Father's provision. Jesus understood the issue at hand was about His contentment with the Father's good and perfect will. Jesus recognized that if bread was not present, then bread was not necessary for faithfulness. If bread was not present, then bread must not have been necessary for Him to be faithful. But abiding in the Word of God, that is necessary. Satan said, you like bread, therefore the Father has neglected you. Jesus said, I like bread, therefore bread must not be necessary for me in this moment. If I needed it, God would have given it to me. Just like he did for Israel in the wilderness. He can make manna, bread, come from the sky. He hasn't done it yet. That's okay. He will do it in his timing. And so Jesus demonstrates himself to be the faithful son. And he shows for us that the word of God is more important, important as a source of sustenance for us than food itself. If food or any other thing that you think you need is lacking, it must not be necessary for your faithfulness in the present moment. He will not withhold from you that which you need in the moment. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Jesus is faithful. He withstands the temptation. After this, Satan sort of whisks Jesus away to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now talk about frightening. All right? Here you are, walking. You're a human um, in the desert. All of these frightening things around you. You're alone. You're hungry. The devil is there with you, the epitome of evil. And then all of a sudden, you're whisked away to Jerusalem, and you're standing on the roof of the temple. Right? If there was ever maybe a moment to be fearful, that, that was, might be it. Um, some of you, if, if it was a height, you might be terrified. Um, I would be terrified. I think we all would be terrified. Whisked away, sat on the port, the, the pinnacle of the temple, which we can't be certain, but it was probably the roof of the temple, which is called the royal porch, which run, runs along the south end of the temple complex. And the southeastern corner loomed over a narrow street that was about 100 feet below. And then, immediately, it dropped off 300 more feet down into the Kidron Valley. So Jesus was likely whisked away, set on the top of this roof, looking down over him, and the distance was something like 450 feet, about 34 stories. And if he jumped, which is what Satan tempted him to do, he would certainly have needed God or an angel to intervene. So Satan says in verse 6, If you are the Son of God, 
If you are the Son of God, again, it's this question of His Sonship. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. But this time, he, he adds some scripture, right, to, to try to strengthen his argument. He sees, okay, Jesus is a man who's going to stand firmly on the word of God. So let me take Psalm 91 and see if I can manipulate it and twist it to get him to do what I want him to do. He says, he will command, scripture says, he will command his angels concerning you to keep you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's what the word says, Jesus so go ahead and jump. Psalm 91 is a psalm that celebrates God's protection, especially in danger. A psalm also references, we read it earlier, references protection from wild animals and demonic powers. And this was a test to prove God's care. In essence, Satan was saying, if you are God's son, then you must love and trust him, right? Well, prove that you really do love him by jumping off of this cliff. If he is truly your father, then he will keep you safe, just as Psalm 91 promises, right? Once again, the temptation is to challenge, for Jesus to challenge the father's care. Satan is saying the father does not care. Now use your power as the son of God to protect and provide and care for yourself. And once again, Jesus responds with the word of God. He says, it's also written, or on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus is saying, Psalm 91 is certainly true. If I jump, if I fall, God will protect me. Nothing will happen to me that is not filtered through his loving hands. I am safe and secure, but he has also said, he will do this. He will care for me, protect me, provide me, give his angels charge concerning me in his own timing and in his own way. And I am not to go about forcing his hand. Faith does not operate this way. It doesn't force God's hand. To do that is blatantly sinful. To put God to the test is not faith, it's not loyalty, it's not courage, it's not bravery, it's folly. It's sin. It betrays a lack of trust and a self-oriented focus. And Jesus did not need to prove His love for the Father, nor did He need to prove the Father's love for Him. It was enough for Jesus that God had said it. And God had also deliberately said not to do what Satan was asking Jesus to do. And so once again, Jesus is confirmed as the faithful son of God. The faithful son. Now look at Matthew 4.8. Satan once again whisked Jesus away on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And Luke says that it happened in a moment of time. Now clearly, there's no mountain that would be high enough for Jesus to be given a sight of the entire world in a moment. So this is probably something like a vision, right? Where Jesus stands with Satan on a mountain and is able to see the nations pass before him. One by one, all earthly power is presented to the Son. 
And Satan says to him, all these things and all this authority I will give to you and all the glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. There's one requirement. If you will fall down and worship before me, all of this will be yours. You can have it all, Jesus. All the nations, all the glory, all the authority, all the power. Now we sing about Jesus having that, don't we? But I want you to notice something here. Certainly, Jesus has this. But the temptation for Jesus was to gain from Satan what the Father had already promised to give the Son. The Father's plan was to give Jesus the nations as his inheritance. That's Psalm 2. The Messiah would be given the nations. Ask of me and the nations will be given to you. This was the Father's plan. It was also the Father's plan for the Son to be given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve Him. That's Daniel 7, 13-14. This is the Father's promise to the Son. But the pathway for all of this glory to be given to the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, was the pathway of humiliation. It was the pathway of crucifixion. Without the cross, without Jesus' humiliation, certainly there would be no salvation for sinners like you and me. There would be no fulfillment of Isaiah 53. That's certainly true. But also without the cross and Jesus' humiliation, there would be no glory, no cross, no crown. What Satan is offering Jesus here is an easy path. It's a way for Jesus to acquire what God had promised apart from the humiliation and the pain of the cross. Now, if he chooses that route, we have no hope, right? It's only in his humiliation, death, and substitutionary atonement that we get life. And he gets a kingdom. And here was a way for him to bypass the pain. But notice, notice the rise in Jesus here. Simply at the thought of what Satan offers him. He says, away with you, Satan. Be gone. For it is written, you shall worship Yahweh your God in him only. You shall serve. Get away from me. Here. Here is the suffering servant. Embracing his role and responsibility as the faithful son and servant who lays down his life for those the Father loves. He will not take the path that, that excludes your redemption. He takes it gladly. And with joy, Hebrews 12. He embraces joyfully his role and responsibility as the faithful son and servant who lays down his life for the ones the Father loves. And then, after humiliation, after crucifixion, 
After being stripped of his glory and crucified, beaten, humiliated, then he will receive all power and glory and might and authority that all nations will worship him. Jesus' allegiance to the Father was total and complete. He would not forgo, forgo the humiliation that must necessarily precede his glory. And when he was presented with an easy option, he said, get behind me, Satan. And friends, Jesus' faithfulness here, this is good news for us. Without this commitment of Christ to the Calvary road, without that, we would have no hope. If he accepts this offer, we are eternally condemned. If he fails one of these tests, we have no hope. Everything for us is riding on these two verses in Mark. Three tests here, all aimed to derail Jesus from his God-given, Spirit-empowered mission to save sinners from the grip of hell and the wages of their sin. And Jesus, our Lord, is entirely undeterred. His commitment to ransom us from Satan's power is undaunted. It's as if he's not even affected in the least by this temptation. And by his faithfulness and obedience, he confirms the fact that he, in fact, is the faithful Son of God, the faithful servant, the Messiah that all the Old Testament foretold. And by his victory, he obtained a righteousness for us. By His victory, He obtained a righteousness for us. Moses failed. Elijah failed. David failed in the wilderness. Israel failed in the wilderness. You have failed. All of these people, humanity at large has failed. But Jesus, the faithful Son, emerged from this fight with Satan utterly untarnished utterly unaffected and unstained, perfectly righteous, not even an ounce of guilt. He didn't even disobey in his thinking. He fought the devil. He fought his demons, and he did this really all the way to the cross, where he finally crushed the serpent's head. And Jesus' entire life, this moment in the wilderness is really just a a microcosm of his entire life. His entire life was one great movement of obedience and love to the Father. And the gospel is that the life of perfect obedience gained by Christ becomes yours by faith. All of that treasure of faithfulness in the wilderness is imputed to us by faith. (laughs) I mean, what a glory. We fail. Israel failed. They all failed. You will continue to fail. But your righteousness, your hope, is not in yourself as a Christian, but it's in the blood and righteousness, the righteous life of Jesus Christ. 
we should trust him. He is faithful. We should say with Paul from Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, right, this is the catalog of his righteousness. Here's all my goodness. Here's all the moments that I've been faithful in the wilderness. And Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And listen very closely. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, when you look to Christ for righteousness, for your obedience, right, the, the the joy that flows from that is immeasurable. If you look at the temptation and you say, okay, here are some lessons for me so that I can learn how to fight the devil. Well, they're certainly there. But the lesson here is that Jesus was righteous. He was perfect. He was faithful. And his faithful obedience can be yours by faith. When you do this, when you trust Him, when you look to Him as the faithful Son of God whose victory over Satan sets us free from His power, then we can really say with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? When we sing that, what we're saying is, his righteousness is perfect, and it's all mine by faith. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Right? Don't trust in your performance in the wilderness. Right? Don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in your own obedience. It will never be enough. We need a righteousness. We need someone to obey the law perfectly. We need someone who is like us, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And that is what we have in our Lord Jesus. And His submission to the Spirit, His victory over Satan, demonstrates for us that He is the faithful Son. Third, and quickly... We see that the Father sees the Son and is satisfied. And the Son enjoys the Father's provision. The Father sees the Son satisfied and therefore He commissions His angels to come and to serve His beloved Son whose identity as the faithful one has now been confirmed. It was announced at the baptism. It was confirmed by His faithful obedience. And Mark simply says, and the angels were ministering to him. The irony here is that in the end, the psalm that Satan misuses, Psalm 91, is fulfilled in God's way and in God's timing. Those who trust the Father certainly dwell, as Psalm 91.1 says, in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That is true. But they also resign themselves 
totally to the wisdom and the timing of their sovereign Lord. The Father discharges His angels whenever He sees fit. And those who trust Him not only trust that He will act for them, but they trust in His timing of that action. Even when it just seems like it doesn't make sense what's happening. And here Jesus withstands the assault from the devil an assault that was unparalleled, that no man had ever experienced. He's in one of the most humanly terrifying and frightening positions that you could even conceive of. But the sense that we get of him is not one of fear or worry or panic or anxiety. No, he, he has none of that because he's perfectly trusting in his good wise father Isaiah 26 3 you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you never was there a man who faced such a temptation and yet endured it all with perfect peace and the wonderful thing about Jesus really is that here's a man course God incarnate but here's a man who actually took God the father at his word and his life demonstrated it and we see him coasting as it were through extreme unimaginable temptation and yet all the way to the end he's faithful and the father of course is pleased so what we have seen in summary here in Mark 1 12 to 13 is a confirmation that Jesus is the faithful Son of God. He is perfectly faithful and is therefore uniquely qualified to be the Messiah and Savior of sinners. By His life alone, we have hope. So if you're here and you're wondering, why, why are you people here on Sunday morning? Why do you come here? Why do you sing about Jesus? Why do some of you get so you know, worked up about Him? Well, friend, it's because all that we have is tied up in Him. We have nothing apart from Him. But in Him, we have it all. And we come here to celebrate that. And we would invite you to come and celebrate with us. And if you want to know more about that, we would love uh, to talk with you about it. But let's pray. Father, we praise You for Your uh, just extraordinary goodness to us. Lord, it is uh, inconceivable the magnitude in which we as poor, weak sinners have been blessed. And Lord, it's true, I think, that maybe part of eternity will be us looking back and thinking, why in the world did we not worship Christ and enjoy Him and love Him more on earth than we did? So Lord, would you help us? Help us to be in awe of Jesus. Help us to love Him more, that our hearts might be drawn to Him uh, more earnestly, Lord, that we would see him more clearly as a result of this wonderful passage in Mark 1, 12 to 13 uh, than we ever have before. And we ask, Lord, that you would do this for your glory, for your joy, and ours as well. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.